Hey, Derek. Welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. So you're new around here. You're the newest reporter at CyberScoop. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You're going to be a regular on this show. Yeah, so um, I uh, have been reporting on technology and cybersecurity for the past seven or eight years. I've um, been at a couple of, of different publications before this covered election security leading up to the 2018 and the 2020 uh, elections um, and uh, now kind of taking on that beat here at CyberScoop, sort of an interesting landscape um, with uh, a lot of new technologies and, and, and threats um, that are being brought to bear. All right, welcome aboard. You're going to be a busy Man, we're going to be talking about the first real major, I would say, deepfake incident of 2024 that's coming up today on Safe Mode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. I'm your host, Elias Grohl. With me today is Derek Johnson, reporter at CyberScoop. Hey, Derek. Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah, so in the past week, we saw a fake robocall be deployed in New Hampshire in which a voice that appeared to be President Joe Biden urged New Hampshire voters not to go to the polls. What happened? Yeah, so this all started happening uh, around uh, Sunday night, a few days before the New Hampshire primary. Um, New Hampshire voters began getting uh, a series of robocalls from uh, someone purporting to be Joe Biden, uh, who was essentially saying, um, you know, if, uh, you know, loyal Democrats, uh, remember that your vote counts in November. It doesn't count uh, in uh, for this upcoming primary. And if you vote in the upcoming primary, you're really only helping to elect Donald Trump. So that was the first, uh, uh, you know, aspect of it. But what was interesting about that is that the phone number that um, was showing up on caller ID as as voters got this call actually belonged to a former state New Hampshire Democratic Party uh, official uh, who is now the treasurer for a super PAC that was running a write in camp uh, campaign for Joe Biden in the New Hampshire Democratic primary. So somebody had spoofed uh, uh, her number. And when uh, 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 New Hampshire residents uh, called that number back, they were redirected to her number um, to get off of the subscription list. So they were kind of pointing directly uh, at her. In terms of how many um, of these calls that uh, we saw, uh, 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 Kathy Sullivan uh, is who is the, the 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 state Democratic Party official? Um, she said that uh, she told me that she had received somewhere uh, around twenty calls um, from uh, folks who were following up with her. She believes that it uh, the ultimately it was in thousands of mm. uh, New Hampshire residents who got this call. Um, it's unclear what the impact uh, ultimately was because Joe Biden did handily win uh, his primary, but there are questions about uh, you know how many folks listened to it how many folks uh, believed it. Uh, Sullivan uh, said that some uh, seemed to, it seemed to be obvious yeah. that it was a fake. Others uh, seemed to genuinely believe it was coming from the president. So let's talk about the actual audio itself for a second here. I listened to it. You've listened to it. Do you think it sounded like Joe Biden? Was it convincing? 
Uh, to to me, because I covered this issue, um, there were a lot of telltale signs. Kathy Sullivan said the same thing, that she had met Joe Biden. She knew Joe Biden. And so to her, it seemed very obviously to mm. be a fake. Um, there are certain things with the cadence and the ass, the, the, the tone of um, a lot of these deep fake audios. They tend to be hollow. They tend to lack sort of emotion and be robotic for lack of a better word. And that's always what I try and pay attention to when I'm seeing or hearing uh, a piece of media and trying to determine whether it's been synthetically generated, because that's one of the areas where it seems like, uh, you know, injecting emotion into their, their, their comments seems to be the one area where they struggle with it. So to me, I noticed a number of telltale signs, but um, these kinds of technologies are only going to get better, particularly for people like Biden, where there's just so much audio and video out there and training material. Um, so it, it, it's definitely going to get more harder to detect. One of the things that I loved about the audio, though, was um, the attempt to try to make it seem uh, authentic uh, using the word malarkey. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's it's interesting, you know, it, it, it's interesting uh, uh, just kind of seeing um you know, like, for instance, presumably a lot of the folks who got this call were on uh, landlines. Um, you know, land, uh, landlines tend to be disproportionately um, uh, used by older folks uh, and, and sort of older generations. Um, New Hampshire is a state where a lot of older folks have a long history of voting and where there's likely to have more familiarity with how voting works. So it seems like this wouldn't it's you would think that that would be the audience that would be least uh, uh, able to be tricked by something like this. But we don't know who did it. We don't know what their motivations are. We don't know, you know, to, we don't know to what extent they were experimenting with this stuff, whether they were actually trying to make an impact, like redirecting to a state Democratic Party official's phone number intentionally seems um, a bit odd. Um, but. But yeah, it's definitely something. Yeah, does that, that make it more or less believable? I don't know, right? You get get put through to Kathy Sullivan when you get a robocall from Joe Biden. I, to some people, that might be believable, but others, that might be a red flag, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, how many how many folks would 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 know that that was that that was her phone number or or kind of be able to suss that together? To me, it's it's interesting because you know if you wanted to alert people. Um, about something like this happening. And that is exactly what happened. Sullivan um, put out a rapid response and reached out to media and things like that. And this became a, a, a big story. Um, it, it almost seemed like they were there was an intentional effort to kind of poke or, or prod yeah. um, uh, the Democratic Party. Over yeah, this. You, you talked to Kathy Sullivan about this experience. What did she have to say about it? So she, um, you know, she's kind of interesting because I think in some ways she was uniquely positioned to... Um, deal with an issue like this because actually uh, uh, back in 2002, she, when she was the uh, uh, Democratic Party state chair, uh, there was a um, GOP uh, uh, executed effort to jam phone lines during the 2002 election between John Sununu and um, Jean Shaheen. Um, uh, uh, so, so she was the, the, the state party chair at the time, uh, a couple of folks wound up going to jail over that. Um, uh, uh, so, so, so when this happened, her initial reaction was really like, I can't believe this is happening again, that people are, are using phones to mess with an election. Mm -hmm. Um, her second reaction was just, um, anger because, 
Um, you know, to her, she kind of viewed this as, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, messing with uh, the the underpinnings of our democratic process. Um, it 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 uh, you know sort of talked about how her her parents were were from the political world, but they were also World War II veterans who had kind of um, you know fought for for uh, you know things like free and fair elections. And so she she said kind of her first reaction was you know here we go again. But then also just anger at, um, at 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 how it is, and I'll say one more thing. Um, you know, she, she's she's emblematic, I think, of 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 a lot of the ways that, or of a lot of state and local officials who are going to have to deal with this kind of threat because she's not a technical person. Um, she doesn't have. She had only sort of a general awareness about AI threats, um, about things like deep fakes, um, and it really wasn't until she experienced this herself uh, that she started paying more attention to the issue. And I think that that's going to be something that gets replicated over and over again throughout this election yeah, season. Yeah, a lot of local election officials are probably going to be learning on the fly when it comes to re- to responding to this stuff. So. This is the first instance in the 2024 cycle, I think, of um, a deep fake in the wild, I believe. Yeah, that was kind of one of the things that I was talking to folks about. And I think where we've settled on is this is the first time that we have seen uh, deep fake, uh, and particularly deep fake audio technology being uh, used to directly target voters during the 2024 U.S. elections and specifically to influence their voting patterns and behaviors. Mm-hmm. Of course, um, we have seen the use of these technologies in the past. You had the Ron DeSantis uh, 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 ad that uh, created a bunch of, of, of AI-generated imagery. We've seen uh, deep fakes being used in uh, elections in Slovakia, in Taiwan, um, in, in 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 Argentina, and and some other places. So so this is you know sort of one uh, a former White House official told me that that this is this was predictable and predicted, um, but it is a wake up call for I think state and local officials who may not be as plugged into this um, because now this is going from something that's theoretical to something that we're actually seeing being deployed and targeted at voters specifically to to deceive them what do you think this incident tells us of how we might see deepfakes deployed in 2024 yeah so i i think that we will see instances like this pop up more and more um and i think we will see varying levels of preparedness and reaction and response um for for different states like one of the things sullivan told me is that you know new hampshire is is a is a small state right and so it's easy to know um you know who you might need to contact in the state attorney's general attorney general's office if uh something like this were to happen where you could get a you know you could get it flagged you could get it immediately um done she uh, uh, very quickly had a, a, an email blast out to, to people saying hey this is happening it's not true um you know you know disregard it um so so to, to a certain extent there was a a good foundation of rapid response in place and good connections that were made um but that might be different for a, a larger state it might be different for um, a small campaign that doesn't necessarily have the rapid response resources in place to do things like this. If it's not a presidential race, right, it could be a a, a state Senate race or, or, or something like that. Um, you know, if you're not the Joe Biden campaign or the Donald Trump campaign or a well-funded Senate campaign or something like that, this might be uh, uh, more difficult for you to handle in the hustle and bustle of, a, of an election than um, than you might think. Okay, great. 
Thanks for your reporting on this, Derek. We're, we will be talking with you again this year, I'm sure, as we cover all things election security, or rather, as you cover all things election security and the rest of us learn from your hard work. Uh, up next on the show, we're going to continue the conversation about election security with Katie Harbath, uh, who spent a decade in, at Facebook overseeing their efforts uh, to run or help run free and fair elections. Uh, she's now a consultant helping all kinds of tech companies try to deal with tech policy issues. And she joins the show to talk through threats to elections in 2024. That's up next on Safe Mode. Year ahead, elections will take place around the world, affecting some 4 billion people. It's an election year unlike any other. Besides the United States, voters will go to the polls in the European Union, the United Kingdom, India, Mexico, and Indonesia just to name a few. The next time we'll see this many elections in one year will be in 2048. The big technology platforms will of course be playing a major role in how voters consume information about these elections and to understand how they're preparing and whether they are prepared. I'm joined today by Katie Harbath, who spent a decade at Facebook overseeing the platform's work on elections. She's now the chief global affairs officer at Duco Experts, a tech consulting firm. Katie Harbath, welcome to SafeMode. Thanks for having me, I'm excited to be here. Great. Uh, So for folks thinking about election integrity, this is obviously a big year and it's a big year for the platforms where a lot of this politicking is going to be conducted. And uh, a lot of folks are concerned that 2024 is going to be a year in which misinformation shapes elections in a way we haven't seen before. And I thought we'd begin by talking about the big players in the space, companies like Meta and Google. I wonder, first off, do you think they're prepared to respond to elections affecting something like half the global population? This is the favorite question everybody likes to ask me is, are we ready? Are we prepared? And the difficult part about this is that we don't know, and we probably won't actually know until after the end of this year and maybe even years to come. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, because of the sheer number of elections happening this year, that was going to stress even the most well-resourced of teams. And On top of that, we have a lot of different, we have our known unknowns, but we also have our unknown unknowns to use a Donald Rumsfeld phrase. Mm. And so we, the companies, we can, based upon looking at what they've done in the past and what's been needed in the past, can try to guess as best as possible if these companies are prepared to move quickly, to make decisions quickly, what are the principles they'll make some of these decisions off of. But until we're actually in the moment and we know what life actually throws at us, it's going to be hard to answer that question. And I also say that too, because let's remember this time in 2020, we didn't, we weren't yet fully in the pandemic. We did not know a lot of the things that 2020 was going to throw at us in January of 2020. And so I'm trying to keep that sort of mindset as we go into this next year as well. Yeah. What are you thinking about in terms of what are like the wrenches that we could throw in the machine for 2024? What's on your mind? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly AI, right? That's everyone's favorite topic du jour to talk about. I'm actually, you know, we just saw an example in New Hampshire with an AI-generated audio of Biden as a robocall going out to people. And I actually most worry about AI audio because there's just less contextual clues for people to be able to tell if it's fake or not. I'm also very worried about this more at the local level. Like at a presidential Mm -hmm. level, something like that happening in New Hampshire, the press is debunking it really quickly. Um, But what is that going to look like at not only a congressional level, but mayoral or city council? There's an example happening in Baltimore right now with a principal 
who there's audio of him saying some really bad things and people can't, he's saying it's AI generated. Others are thinking it's real. This is what's really kind of permeating throughout you know, going to be happening in these elections. Now, I want to say the word of caution. I really think of this year with AI kind of like what social media was to Obama in 2008. Mm. We're still at the very beginning of this. And I'm very nervous as well, just about what the impact of the narrative of what AI could do will impact and people's trust in what they're reading and news and stuff like that. And it's going to be very hard for people to separate out the signal from the noise of what could happen versus what is actually happening and what is that impact actually on the election. And those are the types of things that's just really hard to know in the moment and takes a lot of research and time for people to kind of figure out, like, what should the right guardrails be? Yeah. One of the things that struck me about the the AI narratives around misinformation over the past year is that and you see this turning up, I think, most prominently in the, the meta takedown reports where they've had these examples of you know, Russian and Chinese operators experimenting with AI, AI generated content, but they're still having that same problem of struggling to reach audiences. And so even if you are generating a lot of AI content for your misinformation campaign, you still have to distribute it somehow and get it in front of audiences. And I haven't seen anyone really make a convincing case about how they're going to use AI generated content to distribute it and distribute it in effective ways. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think that's something that a lot of actors, whether they're trying to, you know, improperly influence an election or just, you know, doing kind of run of the mill campaigning is trying to, to figure that out because we are in a much more fragmented media environment, right? Like you think back to 2016 and even 2020, it was still kind of the big three. It was your Facebooks, your Instagrams, your YouTubes, Googles, stuff like that. TikTok now is a much bigger player. Telegram's a much bigger player. Um, the other thing about this though, too, that I really want to caution people on is they, you are right in that they still have to get it distribute, distributed and out to people. However, we should not think that something has to be seen by a lot of people in order to have impact. And one of the things that we could see with AI is that things are getting more customized. So it is, you know, if you're trying to influence people from Wisconsin, you're trying to use AI to do a bit more of a Wisconsin type Midwestern accent versus if you're trying to reach somebody in the South or you might have a more Southern accent, right? Like, Mm. so you're doing so. And if we even remember the Russian internet research agency ads in 2016, um, they actually did not spend a lot of money. They were seen by, you know, when you did the full numbers by a lot of people. And so, I want to caution that if we're just looking for big numbers, we might actually miss a lot of stuff Mm. that is having some impact on small portions of the electorate. And when we think that for the U.S., it is really only small portions of the electorate that might actually decide the election in some of these swing states. Right. I mean, yeah, if we go back to 2016 and some of the 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 margins with which Trump ended up winning the presidency. Right. We're talking about probably tens of thousands of votes in, in a handful of swing states. So. Um, yeah, the, those tight margins, I think, really matter. I'm glad you brought up this issue of uh, fragmentation among the platforms. And I think I think thinking back to the Obama years is really instructive. <laughs> In 2008, uh, Barack Obama could run like, a really innovative 
a presidential campaign just by spending a lot of money on Facebook. And that at the time just really blew people's minds. And it's just that that feels so quaint right now. Yeah. Uh, but so today, you know, if you're if you're messaging a misinformation campaign, you know, you're having to you're, you're spreading your resources across a lot of different platforms. What do you see as, as the impacts of that fragmented platform landscape for election integrity issues? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it's just much harder to understand how this information flows between these platforms. So a lot of the platforms have been pulling back in the amount of transparency they offer if they ever offered it at all to researchers. And while Meta can understand what's happening within its properties and X can happen, understand what's happening within X and and they try to collaborate somewhat, but it is really hard to get this overall picture. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing changes of how this works because of a lot of the efforts of the bigger platforms, like you said, to do a lot of work to try to prevent foreign interference or Facebook's word for his coordinated and authentic behavior. They're moving to platforms like Telegram and X. And we saw that with the Israeli conflict is that a lot of content started there and then it can spread to other platforms. So it's just harder to understand what is happening. Um, nefarious actors can also exploit the different loopholes in all these different platforms. So some of them are very hands-off, right, in terms of content moderation. Some of them um, some of them might have other policies that are, are beneficial to this. And so these actors kind of learn like, okay, how do we exploit those particular loopholes that work best for us? And that's just really hard for people, again, externally to even keep track of because the tech companies are, even though they're not necessarily doing less around election, they're doing things differently and they're being less vocal about it. So it is much harder to keep track of what exactly everybody is doing because they just, I think they see no benefit in being very vocal about it because you then just tend to get a lot of people who disagree with your approach and like they just don't want to be at the forefront mm. of the conversation on it because it just puts you in a really politically tricky spot. Mm. That's interesting. Let's hone in on TikTok. Obviously, biggest social media platform in the world. It's um, it's owned by a Chinese company, but is now trying to make a persuasive case that it's domiciled in the U.S. and has effective security measures in place. What's your sense of how they're approaching the election? So they're amongst um, a lot of the platforms that have put a ton of resources into it, okay. um, and what they're going to be what they're going to be doing not only in the U.S. and abroad. I think TikTok, though, they are one of those. Um, you know, they don't allow political ads. Um, when they testified in front of Congress and stuff, they're like, we're not a political app. Um, you see Meta is doing the same thing. They're like less politics and news. However, my message to all these platforms is you can run, but you can't hide from politics. If you are a place where people are at, they're going to be discussing the election and everything like that. And you've got to have some plans around this. Where I think TikTok is going to be um, also interesting is a, we're going to see candidates, particularly on the right, have a moral argument over whether or not they should even be on the app. And you've got one hand operatives who are like, it's where young voters are. We need to be there. We shouldn't cede it to the left. You have others being like, we are not going to support a Chinese app <laughs> and we're not doing it for national security concerns. Yeah. So then you're going to see though, people be like, well, then do we use influencers, right? To yeah. So maybe us as the candidate are not on the app, but we're going to have 
influencers help to spread our message? And what does that look like? And then where's the transparency around that about are they being paid? Are they not being paid? Mm -hmm. What is that? What does that look like? Um, I also think, too, you have, you know, some of these Supreme, uh, they're not just Supreme Court cases, but other court cases working through with TikTok and everything. And so it's hard to know how all of those as those get ruled on in the middle of an election year, does that impact what TikTok is is doing? But I think that they're trying to learn the lessons that other tech companies have learned over past election cycles and are certainly putting effort into into election integrity. Do you have a sense of, uh, of whether, I don't know, the right or the left in the U.S. is, is doing better on TikTok today? Um, I don't know if I necessarily have a terribly good, a terribly good sense. I know that the Biden campaign and the Democrats have long been very vocal about utilizing influencers like the White House had influencers in, I think it was around the infrastructure bill or something like a, that. They just had another meeting with the influencers, I think. Did they? Okay. I believe so so yes. they're, they're being very forward about that, that that's, that's their goal. That's what they're going to be doing, et cetera. But then I've also been seeing, um, and talking to some folks that have been doing research that say while Republican candidates aren't on there, there is actually quite a big ecosystem of young conservative influencers that are also very much dominating the TikTok scene. And I think this goes back to one of the challenges we were talking about earlier is um, there was a great piece in The Atlantic a couple of weeks ago by Charlie Wurzel about like how we don't really even know what's happening on the internet because like some of the, the most watched TikTok videos, he was like, I never saw these. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like what world am I living in that I didn't see supposedly the most viral video on TikTok. And so, you know, this is why that re- that work of researchers and stuff is really important because I think it's, it's unless you have dedicated time to go searching out for that stuff and trying to figure out what's happening, it's actually, you can get you know, stuck into your own little bubble pretty easily. Absolutely. No, I, I, I can't be on TikTok. It just breaks my brain every time I have that app. So I've just, I downloaded for a week and then I, I get rid of it. I, it hasn't been See, on my I like phone it for, for a my, long time. It's been nice. I like it for my Swifty news. I'm a Taylor Swift fan. Exactly. So right. like, exactly. <laughs> that's about where I, my gardening, I've got some gardening. And like, for me, it is like, I've, I've very intentionally curated my TikTok feed, which probably isn't good for my business side of what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. But like, for I'm like, I do need a spot that's like a bit more of just like a little bit, uh, love, you know, uh, lighter fare. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And I think that's what people think about when it comes to TikTok. And then, you know, I, over the past couple of months, obviously like TikTok has become the center of the debate over, you know, the conversation around Israel and Hamas and that conflict. And I think that's a great example of your point about, you know, you, you can run, but, but you can't hide from the political conversation. It's going to come for you. And, um, I think we, we see that exhibit a of that for TikTok is, is the way that the, that conflict I think has played out on the platform. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing too, is we continue to see very interesting research of, and I think about this a lot in the conversation of what's happening to the journalism industry and stuff. Morning console just came out with a poll. Not surprisingly, most Gen Zers are getting their news from TikTok. They don't want to talk about business and politics and they want it in a video format. Mm. Um, and so, and a lot of them are getting it from news influencers, not necessarily traditional news outlets. And so I think about, but then older generations are still looking to local news or national news, um, for, for that. Um, and so you also have the, how news is being consumed, being fragmented across generations. 
And that's something that I'm also watching of where campaigns are putting their time and effort. But then also, if you're looking for nefarious actors, who are they seeing to be most susceptible to the messages that they're trying to put out there? And what does that look like? Hmm. So within all of these companies, it's traditionally been the trust and safety teams that have been charged with... um, I'm going to use a controversial term, policing information on the app uh, or ensuring the integrity of information, perhaps to use a more neutral term. And we've seen a lot of headlines about these teams being defunded, reorganized. Kind of like, what's your sense of, of how trust and safety teams are doing within the big tech companies today? Yeah, so I really put this into three categories. So first, you have the legacy platforms. This is your your Metas, which includes Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, your uh, Microsofts, your Googles, folks that have been around for quite some time. There have definitely been layoffs, um, but they also are still doing a lot. There's still a lot of people at these companies doing this work. And so I think that it's natural that um, depending upon where your needs are, you scale up and down what that work looks like. And like I said, with the number, sheer number of elections happening this year, that was going to stress out even the most well-resourced of teams. So the question for me there is actually how, what are they having to deprioritize and are they having to deprioritize other countries? And we just don't know because they're not being transparent about what that looks like, but I don't want people thinking that like they've just dropped all work because they haven't. I put X in its own category. X slash Twitter, they had right very massive cuts, huge changes to the platform. It's I just have to put it in its own category because we've demonstrably seen how that has affected the quality of content on the app and and how it functions and what that looks like. Now, that being said, yes, some people have left the app, but I also have found that 10 years worth of habit and not necessarily having threads isn't quite there yet for live events. You know, people are struggling a little bit now personally. Again, there's a lot of moral struggles happening, I think, amongst both people and candidates and organizations about where do we spend our time and money on these different apps and can you really pull away if that's still where a vast community of people are then you have your category of your newer apps so this i would put tiktok in there and like i said they're kind of the most well-resourced you have OpenAI, who they've hired specific folks to work on the elections but it's still a really small team um you also have other smaller apps like discord or twitch or things of that nature that um want to do some work in this space, but again, they're very resource limited in how big their trust and safety teams are. Now, I guess I should add a fourth category to this, which is the trust and safety consultant and vendor community of which now I'm a part of Mm. um, in in my job. And we've actually been employing, we have experts all around the globe and we've been able to pull in some of those tech workers that have been laid off to help do some of the work that we do, whether it's helping companies write policies or understand like the risk assessments for different countries and stuff like that. Um, there's There's been a lot of these different um, companies that have popped up, especially post layoffs, because people have then been starting them to build tools to help with content moderation and do some of this. Um, and they're able to help supplement, particularly for the mid-size and small-size companies, mm-hmm. um, some of their work in this space. And that's just something that that's also totally new from 2020. I want to ask you a question about OpenAI since you mentioned them. Like, what's the what's the threat model for OpenAI? What do, what what types of use cases do they envision their tools being um, deployed to? 
do in the context of the, the 2024 election? Yeah, so I think first there's, um, if people are searching for information about the election, where, when, how to vote, who the candidates are, what the results are. And so OpenAI is announced- interactions? Either chatbot, yeah, interactions, um, anything like that. And so OpenAI actually announced they're partnering with the National Association of Secretaries of State um, to help show authoritative information. And they're using some of their news partnerships as well to help mm. surface some of that info. And that's something that the Facebooks and Googles and stuff have done for a long time around that. Um, they also announced that they are blocking the ability for any political campaign or anything to build a chatbot. They actually just banned a developer for Dean Phillips, who's, is it Dean Phillips or Doug Phillips, who's running against Biden? I always I forget can never remember. his name. I, so, we'll, we'll, but anyways. We'll, we'll get to forget him soon enough. <laughs> exactly. Um, but so, you know, campaigns can't necessarily use, you know, their API and stuff to do that. Mm. They're also blocking people's ability. So like if you're on Dolly, which is their image AI image yep. generator um, to block you from being able to create images using the candidates and stuff like that. Now, those are their policies. The question is going to be how well can they actually enforce against them and find a lot of this. I suspect that a lot of it will be reactive um, because there's always people always find ways to get around these loopholes and stuff like that um, and try to really stress test the system. And, and you know, it's not just the U.S., it's going to be globally. And I've been hearing some really interesting stories that not in nefarious ways, but campaigns, particularly in Indonesia, are using AI to generate campaign posters and they're using it to help draft a whole bunch of social, they take a, you know, bulleted list of points they want to make and they're like, make me post for LinkedIn, Facebook, X, et cetera. And it, it does all the work for you, right? For that, yep. um, they have chat bots as well and stuff like that. So um, I know everybody really likes to pay attention to all the negative stuff that AI might do, but there's some positive ones as well. And I think these AI companies are just really nervous about not necessarily knowing the impacts that these could have, that they're choosing to block political use altogether rather than risk, take the risk of something going wrong. Yeah. I think the the use case of AI being deployed to help run a political camp or generate material for a political campaign, I think is interesting. I'm not familiar with the Indonesia example, but I know in the recent Argentinian presidential campaign, the opposition candidate there that ended up losing to Javier Malay, he was running all of these kind of almost like Banksy style campaign posters that had been generated using AI in which, um, you know, he's he's depicted in these posters as sort of the head of a popular movement. And it's very clearly that it's like that AI aesthetic that, that you can quite easily see. But anyway, um, I want to ask you a little bit about the, the enforcement issue. And, you know, one of the ways that companies have been able to um, enforce their content moderation rules is thanks to information that is provided to them by the U S government intelligence provided to them by the U S government. And that, Link that relationship has been severed by a court ruling, uh, Murphy v. Missouri. Um, basically, the U.S. government no longer has the same ability to communicate with platforms around false information. I'm curious, first off, that you talked to a lot of folks in the industry. What do they say has been the impact of that ruling? Yeah, I mean, Meta's been out there publicly saying that since July, um, which is when the initial injunction came down from the from the Louisiana judge, um, that the government has not been engaging with them um, at all mm. um, while they try to, while this all works its way through the courts. Now, I think it's important to go back to remember why these partnerships were built up in the first place, which was criticism coming out of 2016 
that companies like Meta and Google and others were not engaging with the government enough to find the Russian interference before the election. And so after that, um, going into the 2018 midterms and 2020, not only did the companies and government start working more together, but also civil society and academia as well were a part of that to try to better share information. And, you know, every company still made its own decisions about what to do, but it was just a better way of sharing intelligence. And so, and that did get trickier because it's some of it, it's hard to know right away, is it foreign or is it domestic when that happens? And so I think there's very legitimate questions to be had about what the role of government should be, what guardrails you can put in place, but we should not throw the baby out with the bathwater per se on this because, there are some really important collaborations that I think we need to continue to have from a national security angle. And it's not just enough in an injunction to be like, there's an exception for national security because it doesn't give enough detail of what do you do if the content's on known origin and, and things of that nature. But it's having a real chilling effect, not only on the government talking to these platforms, but again, all those other players, um, civil society, academia, and others, because they're not only named in that case, but they're also being sued by other folks. They're being dragged in front of Jim Jordan's committee on the House. And so there's just a lot of attacks on their work. And these, what's really great is these folks want to keep doing their work. They want it, they're going to keep plowing forward, but they also work for institutions that are trying to make sure they minimize any potential damage or you know, reputational damage that can come from having to fight and just pure money of lawyers like yeah. they're not cheap um of having to fight a lot of this yeah i mean in, in 2020 we saw a bunch of different very vibrant high quality research partnerships between various universities civil society groups um, and those don't really exist anymore as far as i'm aware i'm mean, curious you know do you, do you see any other kind of interesting similarities and differences between 2020 2020 and 2024 yeah, there's actually quite a lot as I keep <laughs> listing them all out um, around around it all. I think, you know, a few I would just highlight, um, and we've talked about some of those, um, but one is the fact that a lot of these platforms are trying to demote the reach of politics and news, and that's having quite, mm. um, there's been reports of how that's really been hurting the news industry and the amount of clicks and traffic and stuff that they're sending it to. We're also seeing differences of how people are being served content. So if you think about the old social media feed days, it used to be very much about what you were connected to, right? So the friends, family, pages, celebs, et cetera, that you chose to follow would be in your feed. And there might be an algorithm that's used to show you which of those things you care about more. But now with TikTok and increasingly meta, they're showing you what's called unconnected content. So mm. based upon what you engaged with, here's other content you might be interested in. So that actually means these platforms have even more um, say over the types of content you are or not seeing. Um, and that includes that includes politics. Um, we have a lot of these different platforms are handing political ads differently. Um, some are banned, keeping them banned. X now allows them. Um, a lot of ads are being on streaming platforms now, but there's no ad transparency. So we don't know what that necessarily hmm. looks like. Kind of traditional um, political ads running on streaming platforms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Um, we also have, you know, we have a lot of new, we've been talking about some of the new entrants to all this. Um, we didn't mention Substack yet, but Substack has been out there being like, we want 2024 to be known as the Substack election. And I'm like, be careful about putting that target on your back. And they're already seeing, you know, controversy over their content moderation choices and stuff like that. But there are a lot of those new, the new ones. The last thing I'll say that we just haven't touched on is, um, a lot. There's also a lot of new regulation. I know we haven't seen a lot here in the U S at the federal level. There's a lot happening at the state level, but overseas in Europe, this is the first election cycle where they are actually implementing the Digital Services Act. And so, and there's other countries that also have varying fake media or false news type laws that they're going to be enacting for the first time that will be interesting to see how well, you know, I, I keep calling the EU the dog that caught the regulatory car because I'm kind of like, all right, let's see how well you all can do on doing this quickly and these really tough <laughs> challenges and stuff like that. Um, and so, again, you're just you're doing all this in the middle of an election cycle. And, and so it's just a lot of newness being thrown into the entire system as we're going into this. Yeah. And I think that the challenge of responding quickly in Europe will be tricky. The the election that's happening in, in I mean, there's there's state level elections happening or rather national elections happening in Europe, but then there's also the continent wide European parliamentary elections. Um, so I, th I think seeing how the, the Digital Services Act ends up playing out there, I think will be very interesting. Um, but speaking of some of the elections that are happening in 2024, one of the most closely watched from an election integrity perspective already took place. It was Taiwan, uh, where voters elected Lai ching of the pro-independence Democratic People's Party. Um, this was definitely a, a blow to Beijing at a time when, or against the backdrop rather, of quite aggressive disinformation efforts and propaganda against the island, um, trying to really diminish the DPP candidate who ended up winning nonetheless. Uh, I'm curious just what your sense is of how that election played out from an election integrity standpoint. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's clear that the Taiwanese people are probably some of the most resilient in the world, if not the most resilient um, when it comes to, you know, there was no shortage of propaganda and attempts at interference online and offline around that. And the Taiwanese people still chose, you know, the the party that is less aligned with the, the CCP um, and wanting and wanting independence and so I think there's actually a lot that all of us can really learn from Taiwan and what different civil society and organizations and the governments and stuff and the campaigns themselves have done. And I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, America was generally known as the exporter of democracy, right? We would go all around the world and, and try to help countries build democracies. We've not necessarily been the importer of it. And I think that it could behoove us to learn lessons from, you know, things like January 6th and violence and stuff. It is not new around the globe of that stuff happening in elections. And so perhaps we need to do a little bit of like, what can we learn from others rather than just assuming that we've all, we've got it all figured out and we're America and we're just, gonna, we're just going to keep, you know, going. And so um, I think, again, I just think there's a lot that we can import and learn from that particular election that I'm excited to dig into even more. Yeah. Is there anything in particular you think where, you know, in terms of what's happening elsewhere in the world where, you know, you think this is something America could learn from? Yeah, I think, you know, I think the main one is, is frankly, you know, the concept of pre-bunking or, or actually putting out counter misinformation, you know, mm. um, counter speech and also starting very, 
soon. Like you can't just wait until two weeks before the election to start doing this. It has to be an ongoing sustained thing. But we saw that with Russia invading Ukraine of, you know, the American government, but also others kind of putting out there like, hey, here's some of the stuff that like Putin's probably going to try um, as part of this. Um, and I think that we can see, you know, one of the things I'm worried about with the U.S. election is studies, a lot of surveys showing People trust how the vote's going to be counted in their community. They don't trust it's going to be counted accurately elsewhere around the country. And so you can't ask election officials to handle that because they've got to deal with just their particular part of the world. They can't be responsible for educating the entire electorate across the country about how things work. And so that's going to be a real big role of the media and others who can help to explain some of that. And I really think we should be starting to do that now. So then that way, when election day comes, people have a better understanding of why Pennsylvania might count their votes different than Arizona and not, and hopefully not be as distrustful of it. I think that's a great note to end on. Katie Harbath, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.